Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to The Fuse Show. My name is David Tran, and I'm a host of The Fuse Show. I'm also a co-founder of Xfusion.io, and today I'm joined by my guest. Uh, Brandon Playford is the founder and CEO of PingMe. PingMe provides mission-critical data infrastructure and machine learning models for next generation of financial services. Thanks for joining me on the show. David, it's really nice to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, it's a pleasure. So something I find really interesting from this, the position of being a host is I get to meet a bunch of interesting people who have had really interesting backgrounds that may or may not seem related to where they're, what they're currently working on. Can you just walk me through the journey of how you became so passionate about solving this problem that you're uh, tackling at Pingme? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say that my journey here has been pretty unconventional. Um, I'm originally from the UK, now living in California, you know, have the uh, fortune of following and pursuing the American dream, as it were, it's still in my, my mind, still very much alive. While we could debate problems in society, America is just an incredible place to come to build a career, build a business and, and, and make change in the world, um, which is sort of part of my driver. Uh, I come from a really small village in the UK. Uh, it's on the East Coast. Grew up in a village with 50 people. Um, it was an hour and a half to get to school. And honestly, pretty humble beginnings. Uh, very, very, very far away from home today with, with where, where I am. And going through life at an early age in Norfolk, which is where I grew up, the general pathway for someone in going out into life would be to uh, go to primary school, go to high school. You wouldn't have the opportunity of going to university or college. Uh, you would sort of go straight out to the workforce and come from a working class background. This is my permanent phone, phone voice right now, which I've kind of attuned to the US with, uh, just being completely honest. My, uh, my, the accent I grew up with is, is not what you currently hear. Um, and mm. grew up in a really rural part of the UK and, and things were quite challenging. The average income for like my family was around 15 to 16,000 pounds a year growing up, right the way through to last 20. And what that meant was I went through a cycle of uh, work and college education by college that's sort of the last two years of, of high school in in the us and i went straight into the workforce so i was actually a chef for about five or six years before going back to study physics at university college london went back around the age of 26 so i was a mature student i loved science growing up uh, and was always inventing things and breaking things but the cost of going to university even though it's subsidized by the government was just out of reach for my family so i went and worked and mm. Work enabled me to go back as a mature student, sort of pay my way through university. I, I did not graduate from my from my master's degree in physics. I, I left in my third year. Um, combination of dropping out, but also both of my parents at the time were sick with cancer. Uh, my mother later passed away, which was a really big like shaping factor in sort of what came next. Um, started my own company while I was caring for both my parents. This was mid sort of 2007, pre-financial crisis. Financial crisis happened, the business I was building, which was a renewables company, we were actually collecting um, yellow grease or used cooking oil, uh, reprocessing it and supplying it back to um, fuel companies to turn into biodiesel. So it was very much sort of oriented mm -hmm. and, and focused on renewable energy and sort of making an impact there. And I would say throughout my life growing up in Norfolk, I've always had this inkling towards um, environmental impact or mission-driven stuff. and going through financial hardship, I think, given to where I am now, only reinforced like the need for better financial inclusion, better financial infrastructure, and what really that could do to shape the world on like a fundamental level. Um, 
started a company doing this waste oil processing, ran that for about five or six years, um, got to a really good scale for a small business in the UK. And around 2013, I got sucked into this kind of crypto thing that was uh, kind of going through its moment in 2013, 14, Bitcoin had just hit $1,000, was starting to go into a bear market. I started mining using a GPU. I basically used all the free cash I had, which is about a thousand pounds to set up a GPU miner. I would mine Dogecoin and a few other coins and very early on in their cycle would hit some lucky blocks and get big rewards in that mining. Mm -hmm. And I earned mining Dogecoin around as much as it would be for 20 years of like an average salary in Norfolk, where I was growing up. Um, I used that to reinvest in mining hardware. And I just saw technology at that point and like the internet. I started coding and hacking at the age 16 in the, in the UK. My mother put all of her money into buying a dual ISDN line and I would keep the phone line engaged 24 seven, like doing different, like running Perl scripts and doing this kind of weird hacking stuff that I would do around 1997 that was. So that's pretty, uh, pretty early on in, in the internet uh, phase. Got into crypto and um, just saw it as this huge like leverage that you could build through the internet. And that hmm. sort of set me on a pathway to coming out to the US. I, I did really well as a, a mining hardware provider in Europe for about two years, did a lot of Bitcoin mining, suffered through multiple bear markets, and that ultimately paid my way to get out to the US. Uh, met my wife and partner and now co-founder um, in the US and moved out here six years ago and started going through the tech kind of ladder in San Francisco. Um, finally getting confidence in 2017 to start my own company, which was a mission-focused blockchain. Um, and we were focused on providing like a mobile phone-based infrastructure for mobile payments globally, essentially trying to give everybody equal access to the similar way that I was able to create wealth um, early on and find my way out here to sort of wealth builds leverage. And sort of at every step, you know, through my life, I've been trying to do that, whether it be through a job or through starting a business or, or whatever it might be. And really, crypto was that key that unlocked that for me. Very, very timing, luck, and just kind of being, mm -hmm. you know, focused in the right place. Um, and through my career in San Francisco, getting here in 2016, it was like peak Uber, peak everything, kind of coming out of like the previous uh, IPO bear market and then what came next. I've uh, got a lot of good experience working with startups, but ultimately got sucked back into the fintech and the blockchain space. So really, my blockchain experience gave me a grounding in like fintech and what it is to kind of provide financial services in an open way and how impactful that could be. I do argue that in some ways it's failed to deliver on a lot of its early promises, but there are a lot of us still working on these mechanisms, whether it be in fintech or financial services, to help increase access and ping me itself also really early yeah yeah it's super early right like you know if you, if you think about it today it's, it's even now still super early and uh always been on like a mission driven thing to sort of try and give the same opportunity that i had to other people um and that sort of culminated in founding constellation i had quite an acrimonious fallout with my co-founder uh ended up going in my own direction they focused he's focused on going a different direction that's when ping me was born around 2018 um, and we were originally trying to kind of set out to give access to credit. One of the things that I experienced with all of my businesses throughout the last 10 years was always being restricted for my growth by availability of credit and working capital. So I thought, how can we use blockchain or data to provide equal access to credit? Credit is the foundation of most wealth building activities. It's been the foundation of me scaling and like scaling businesses, but it's always been hard to find. And when you look at this problem, 
there's 3 billion people globally that are either thin file, uh, invisible prime customers, or don't have a traditional credit score. And um, when we started building Ping, we were going to be a B2C platform providing entrepreneurs and small businesses with credit directly kind of peer to peer. And over time, hmm. we realized the bigger value was unlocking data and giving insights to uh, a range of startups and other builders who could build, you know, a hundred different services B2C on top of a common layer. Like I, hmm. I truly believe that, you know, lending is going to be embedded in every single product that we use today. Um, in the same way that payments and finance and fintech is going to be embedded in every company. And what you need, you need the building blocks for credit to be done in a responsible way. So as it can drive wealth creation as opposed to debt culture and debt entrapment. Um, so that's what we're, you know, that's what we're really trying to build. And my passion comes from thinking that solving wealth inequality comes from leveling the playing field and giving access to the same tools that other people have to build wealth. And we can truly make the world more sustainable if, if that's developed, like people get more open opportunities and, and more open access to finance really drives uh, a better world. So yeah, my, <laughs> my slightly long-winded story there. So um, that's what kind of got me here and then been building that vision for the last three years. A little less blockchain focused now, it's it's more data focused, but providing data back to back. Hmm. So that's a little bit of my journey here and, and why trying to make this financial impact. So you mentioned these building blocks, the building blocks of what you yeah. envision to be, to unlock the like a real good future of FinTech. Can you like elaborate on what those building blocks yeah. are in your, your mind and what you think the roadmap is? Yeah, so it's really interesting. If we look back at sort of payments, right? So. You know, we had PayPal and Stripe, PayPal kind of really coming out of the woodwork, um, you know, 10, 12 years ago, uh, maybe a little bit before that. I'm, I'm not sure of the exact date, but, you know, been around for a long time. Uh, providing a B2C service where you'd integrate within eBay or whatever app you're kind of checking out with. Everybody was charged fees at the time, even on credit cards, you'd be charged a fee. We've then come into this paradigm where payments has been uh, essentially made into services through API. Like you've got Marketa that builds uh, payment blocks. Essentially there's a set of APIs or building blocks and frameworks that allows anyone now to process, process payments, just kind of out of the box. And with that, the fees of payments have gone to zero because of the commoditization of these things. It's yeah. also meant that most platforms within a few hours can build payment or checkout functionality, you know, Shopify pioneered this as well, really, really simply and, and really effectively. And we're starting to see the same demand um, for, for data. So Plaid really pioneered this in the US, like set the standard mm -hmm. for kind of open banking in the US, allowed Venmo to scale to where it is today to, to easily onboard uh, customers and, and take ACH payments or you know instant payments from, from accounts with users' permission. And we're now moving into this paradigm where Credit traditionally has been housed by a few siloed institutions, banks serving a narrow subset of customers that are prime customers um, that are all being served by the same set of banks and there's a lot of competition. Mm -hmm. So a world where if we look at the way that data is becoming owned by the individual, if you can somehow give your data to a trusted third party, that then at your permission can share it with an entity or an institution that's providing some valuable credit service, there's huge value. Mm. So the way that we approach mm. this market is, you know, you have 
KYC as a module. KYC is pretty dominated by some incumbents on Fido, other platforms. There's a long list of KYC people for onboarding. But beyond that, it's actually quite challenging other than using FICO um, to figure out someone's risk profile. So we're building like a set of building blocks and, and specifically focused on Africa. The one thing I missed out in my story is I, I spent five or six years in Africa while I was doing this renewables company, helping mm -hmm. uh, individuals become self-sufficient on biofuels. And when I was there, I would frequently lend to individuals to help them with short-term working capital. Would always see a massive uplift in um, productivity and like financial success for them. And that was part of the insight that I used to kind of transfer here. And we have focused on Africa mm -hmm. as our first two markets. And the thing with Africa is as a market, it's very fragmented. There's lots and lots of players offering services. There's no common set of standards to sort of do financial services on top of. So we saw data as the perfect place to build these building blocks that a developer can bring into their platform to offer a composable, in a way, uh, lending product. So you've got you know, transactions or balances and then machine learning models that build on that, that can be composed into something that provides a way of uh, assessing risk. So how hard was it to get started in, were you in Africa when you started uh, your current business? Yeah, uh, for a period of time, for about for, for a few months at the beginning of 2018. Um, I would say the there are some pretty big hurdles, um, but there's also some really interesting nuances about the market. So uh, specifically in Africa, they transact on mobile money, um, which is an open mm. standard of kind of USSG transacting, which is uh, conducted over, it's a unified standard across telcos, launched in 2007 by M-Pesa, um, which is Safaricom. I was in Tanzania and Kenya at the time when that launched, I would use it a lot. So I had around five years of experience using it, but everyone was constrained by le lending at that time because everybody would go to the bank or banking hall to get a loan, hmm. or it'd be philanthropy driven, to be honest with you, through MFBs. Talent and Branch started in sort of the so 2014-15 cycle uh, and started doing micro lending instantly through Android using a set of alternative data that we tap into partially for, for our kind of models. And that was the insight. So yeah, spent time on and off, would have spent more time if it wasn't for COVID recently, but travel has been more challenging and we've got a phenomenal team mm. that we've built uh, in market that, that run our operations in Kenya and, uh, and, and Nigeria. Hmm. It's interesting to hear people in using or having staff in in Kenya because my team also a good chunk of my teammates are in Kenya and it's not a common common country based on what I've heard. But yeah. it's good to know others doing it too. Yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's fantastic and, and really, you know, one of our big philosophies is that we're currently focused on these markets and what we see is this huge opportunity to provide the same infrastructure that a lot of the highly funded startups have been using for doing lending mm -hmm. for a long, long time and democratize access to that. So when you democratize access, uh, the cost of capital for the borrower goes down. So right now, right. Lend lending rates can be really high. Like, you know, in the US we have this condition where um, we are able to have a cap on lending because it's regulated. 35% is basically a cap in the US that you can charge a consumer. That doesn't exist in many other markets. And you'll find that underserved individuals will always get penalized when the reality is that lending to that segment can be very profitable if the rate of interest is high. You may see defaults in the 20 to 30% range, but when you're looking at interest rates from 
90 to 250%, which is common in these markets, it becomes a very profitable business. And there's almost like a misalignment mm. in, in, in incentives between the lender and hmm. the consumer, um, which drives, you know, sometimes unset, unpalatable or unconstructive uh, lending patterns with, with some of the actual lenders out there. So you can have people hopping from loan to loan, and they can get trapped in a debt cycle. So we, we, the problem we started solving was how can you lower the cost of capital to these individuals where they're not getting trapped in debt and the playing field is leveled a bit and more and more local businesses can build quickly on a common set of features and APIs or, or platform to offer lending products in a streamlined way. And that's going back to the Lego bricks question. If you have these Lego bricks, you cut down immediately on your like developer costs from a backend perspective, your machine learning costs, your data processing costs, all of these things that are quite, while they're commoditized still, there's a heavy resource and um, uh, kind of specialist specialization that isn't always available to fund these, especially in our, our hiring climate today with tech. Um, and making those available allows any developer essentially to launch these products in a responsible way uh, with a no, within a known segment. So we're really looking to try and you know create these building blocks that anyone can become a lender. Um, and hopefully, you know, we include the the fifty percent of the population that's financially excluded by providing this infrastructure. You touched upon it earlier and how like regions like the United States have a FICO system where yeah. there's multiple people who report like various types of credit transactions into a centralized or centralized entities. Uh, is there a similar equivalent in Africa or are you trying to become that equivalent or are you like how, how what's the what's the parallel in Africa? Yeah, so there's a fine line I think between being a credit bureau and being uh, like a financial data processor. So you'll still find the existence of credit bureaus. For example, in Kenya, TransUnion is the biggest. TransUnion has a really big presence mm. in South Africa. Uh, in Nigeria and Ghana, they're sort of more local. Uh, the one in Ghana is actually owned by Dun & Bradstreet. Dun & Bradstreet. Um, mm. And I think the same in its CRC is one of the main credit bureaus in, in Nigeria itself. What you tend to find is that the coverage of the population is extremely low. Um, you find that yeah, you find that there's very thin files and then the data they have is really out of date. So you have to have this almost like opt in to get served uh, real time processing to give the best snapshot in time of, of somebody's risk. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely infrastructure there, but the infrastructure there is, is, is much more laggard to where we are in the US just because it's many times out of date um, and then many times the coverage is very, very low. Maybe. I think it's 11% of sub-Saharan Africa is actually covered by uh, credit bureaus. While it is increasing, hmm. it's very, very low across the sub-Saharan African region, a little higher in Kenya. Um, but the majority of the people that need access to credit that benefit from it are, are again excluded. And then the banks aren't able to lend, which leaves this sort of like gray area of digital lenders that serve those customers often at high rates. I see. So how does a, how does a third party like ping me start to build a, I guess, infrastructure that allows you to encapsulate a variety of more, more of the population's um, behavior so you can build a like unofficial credit score of some kind? Yeah, so that's a really great question. It's a really great question. And it's one of the biggest challenges. So if you think about it, your, my, whomever's financial information is probably one of the most valuable things we own. Um, yeah. You know, we don't just gonna give it willingly to anyone. Um, so you have this chicken and egg problem. Uh, the problem is without the data, you can't start building the models. Without the data, you can't start processing it. 
there are yeah. many companies before us that have lobbied or worked or done business development with like the telcos and incumbents to essentially take data they already have in silos and process it. That can take years yeah. to get to that point, like one, two, three years. So we took an approach where we decided to hack our way to get our data set to start this. And the way we hacked our way was we did launch our own B2C application where it had a product offering specifically in our markets. Uh, and we used that to acquire our own data set to start with, um, to then build our B2B layer, um, which is what we've been doing for the last two years. So we, we use that kind of like hmm. Pestle in the US have done something similar with Subprime. They did a lot of lending themselves and then they've pivoted part of the company into doing an API service for subprime lenders that can kind of use that data set to, to do it. And it's important to note, like one of the things that we don't necessarily focus on is providing like a score, an instant score. We provide a lot right, of, right, right, right. yeah, a lot of variables to allow people to compose their own score. So David, if you're lending to one particular segment, your risk assessment is very different to me lending to like MSMEs, like micro, small, and medium sized enterprises. We're very different to you lending to maybe like an SMB. Each of our credit models are different, um, but we maybe use a kind of pre-qualification score to slim down our pipeline and then different aggregations mm. to actually feed into our credit scorecard uh, at the end. So making those calculations and features available at scale is, is what we're really specializing in. And that's why we kind of call ourselves this infrastructure as a service and machine learning as a service. So you can just use it out of the box. Yeah. Is the business model that you would take some of the spread for financial services built on top of your platform? Is that how it works or is there like a pay per user per month or yeah. well, what is your organization yes. strategy? Great question. When, when we, when we looked early on, we, we thought about the format. We, we thought about, is there some way of connecting parties and, and taking a, a fee on that connection? Um, we rapidly found, I mean, that's like the credit card model and like lots of other sort of uh, platforms right, right, that right. do this. Right. Um, and we found that the consumption of data should be high in order to make the best decisions. So we've been through several iterations, like firstly starting there, then looking at kind of a SaaS based model where it's like an all you can eat kind of model, then looking at more of an API driven model. And we've sort of come up with a hybrid where we have a base subscription that gives you certain access to a load of features in an all you can eat way. Um, and then an API driven model for some of the more um, like specialized credit aggregations that are more expensive to perform or create or have more value or maybe used at a different stage in, in lending or risk assessment. Um, so a mix of both, uh, a mix of both. And we move completely away from the pure API core model because it ends up getting too expensive for the customer. And you're actually restricting use where we want our customers using as much data as possible so as they can get the best visibility into their, into their end user. So whenever I come across these businesses that have like these network effects where you obviously need the users to get the data so right. the platform has value, how, what was the process in building one side of the marketplace before the other? Like, how did you approach it and how did you know when was the right time to start going after the other side? <laughs> that's a really challenging question to answer. Um, <laughs> that's a really challenging question to answer. I mean, it's, it's so funny. We, um, we went through an accelerator uh, called Creative Destruction Labs in Canada, which was really, I think, helpful in defining this. Uh, it's funny looking in hindsight because that, that, that two-sided marketplace problem is really, really hard to, hard to solve. Um, again, our approach was uh, bootstrapping ourselves. I, I very much got this sort of, you know, dog eat your own dog food mentality, which is a bit cliche, yeah. but um, using our own 
you know, initial lending strategies and doing, I hate, like, and doing a credit karma type model. So when we first released our app, being completely candid, we had five or six early adopters in it that were offering loans for specific segments. They were often smaller microfinance banks or um, fintechs who didn't necessarily even have an app. And what they would do, they would hmm. put a, an application of sorts in our mobile application. We would target segments of users for them. And then they would process the loans out and originate them to hmm. that set of customers. And one of our first customers was a, was a mobile money network in Nigeria. Uh, they serve, they have uh, agents who do cash in, cash out. And the pain point here was that agents didn't have enough float um, to maintain high transaction volumes all day. Like if, if you're coming to me and switching dollars for, um, for, for a bank balance or Naira for a bank balance, if I keep cashing out, I will run out of cash. Uh, if, if I keep I cashing in, um, I will end up with a surplus of cash. So you end up with these weird times where increasing flow to these agents increases their productivity and they make more money because it's a transaction-based business. So we started lending mm -hmm. with almost like lines of credit to these agents. Um, and that was the way we started. And it was always, you know, fantastic repayment rates. Um, we learned a lot and then scaled uh, slowly out of the application into an SDK model where we embed our SDK into our client's app and then they do the distribution. So first of all, building that leverage with the first data set and then using that to essentially sell into the customers we serve um, and show and prove value. And that probably lasted about two years, honestly. That was a kind of like two year period, like deeply understanding the data, really figuring out what the pain point of the customer is. Because if you ask one of our customers what they want, they, they you know, the first question I get asked when we're doing credit uh, scoring is, how accurate is your credit model? And actually, it's not quite the right question to ask. It's more, how accurate is your data at predicting or accurately pricing risk? Because essentially, any level of default can be profitable if you charge the right way, unless it's 100% default, in which case, that's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely insane. Um, but you know, if you're able to measure risk in real time and adjust what your rates are, um, you can better understand what your collections is. So the two key critical points of failure in lending is pricing risk. And then secondly is collecting and collecting the payments and understanding how you can optimize collections. When you look at what a customer is doing, it's those two things that fail the first. Pricing risk is obviously heavily dependent on your data coverage and like how much data you have and obviously the credit score. But as a lender, you're always gonna want to kind of make your own adjudication, your own decisioning. Um, and own that IP yourself. The second you start outsourcing it, you're essentially outsourcing the responsibility, your balance sheet and your shareholders or your balance sheet shareholders, and it can get really risky, right? I think everyone thinks they want to be an instant lender, but the reality is that you need to own that model. It's how you build that model quickly and easily and iterate that's the absolute mm -hmm. key here. Um, yeah, so I, I find it fascinating the way that people look at lending that, um, are just used to consuming it because when you're issuing credit, it's it's very very different set of decisions you're making. So one of the set of questions I really like to dive into is just the domain of the hypotheticals. Okay. So the hypothetical that comes to my mind is let's say we fast forward some number of years and everyone in Africa, both or every consumer in Africa, uses your software and they're uh, opting in to provide their data. And every business, every every fintech, every or financial service or fintech business in Africa is also using your service. What's on the roadmap after that? Oh, I love it. So for me, the future is um, a less 
overbearing and uh, invasive Alipay or WeChat. So we look at every financial institutional fintech globally, like this is something that we developed, they're on a journey from zero to five. And that's our data journey. Essentially, what we're doing is we're, the way we look at it is we're driving user experiences. And, and to answer your question, in the future, the world looks like a completely curated and customized user experience for your finances. And Alipay mm -hmm. and, and WeChat and, and Financial do a great job of this. It's, like I said, it can be controversially invasive, um, but that's where data ownership becomes important. It, it should be for the user to opt in who they share with, and that's one of the core tenets right, of, right. of data governance is, is something that for us is long-term value. Near-term is value to the customer of ours serving the end user, but the long-term value is data ownership and being able to leverage that where it most fits. So for us, um, for me, the vision of the future is, you know, being able to have this portable financial like identity, as it were, um, and being able to kind of submit that for use by an institution where your user experience with them from the time you start your sign up to the time you churn out or, or go somewhere else. And, you know, in fact, you shouldn't churn out because you should, you should have such a, a pleasing experience where everything is served up to you that that isn't the case. So the world will be one where uh, there is a product for everybody. Is what I believe. The product will be priced accordingly, whether that's a credit product, a savings product, an investment product, a credit card, mm -hmm. a flexible line of credit, a home line of credit, wherein before you even realize that you need it, it's going to be offered to you and that's going to help you on your wealth journey. So right now, credit for mm -hmm. a lot of people is either for an emergency or for the higher end building and continuing to grow wealth in a way where you're using it as leverage either in the market, yeah. against the house or whatever like that. So so for me, like our vision is to get everyone from this zero where it's like a very rudimentary, either paper-driven or like uh, in-person uh, banking experience right the way up to this fully digital, mobile-driven, like mobile penetration is going through the roof. You know, 70% of the continent is going to be on mobile, predominantly Android, which is, which is great for this kind mm -hmm. of use case. Um, it's when you're using alternative data to school. Um, so this world is one where when you sign up, the person you're signing up with is giving you the best product for you. And, and Alipay and WeChat hmm. on five scale, like this is like fintech nirvana that everyone's trying to get to really, um, and taking those steps along that journey. So we want to be the enabler along that journey. So as at the end, every single person is getting the highest satisfaction. That's a user experience. Like we're just driving products through a better user experience. If you have someone apply for a loan, like if you go and apply for a loan, and you get declined at the end, it's a really disappointing experience. Like let's say that's for a house and having that lack of certainty up front is a, a, a terrible user experience. So bringing that hmm. like knowledge up front and then using that to drive better behavior, um, education, and then access the products where people are coming to this economy and this new world that's completely digital with eyes that are wider open um, I think it's really powerful and that's that's our vision for the future and going from this very analog world to this sort of semi-digital world we have today to this pure digital where you have authority over your data and if you want to have this like really customized experience, you opt into it uh, and you can get a lot of value that's aligned with incentives with the person providing it to you and you can also switch mm. and change and provide more competition in the market. So a more equitable market where rates are lower 
um, but where more choice exists and one where, you know, user experience and satisfaction with financial services is really optimized. So you mentioned like the user experience from a couple different angles, right? There's user experience of like getting good rates and there's also the user experience of like being treated well. Yeah. How do you like balance all these different like competing things for your attention as a leader of a company? Because I imagine on one side you're thinking about how can I expand my business? Also, how can I expand the product like so that users have a better experience? And how can you also expand my team, make sure they're all happy? Like, how do you juggle all of this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard. Um, <laughs> make a thousand jokes about that, but I'm probably not, I'm probably not be that funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a technical guy, so my sense of humor is, while it's hopefully British and witty, it's, it's not that good all the time. <laughs> so I'm not going to stumble into that trap. Um, but it's, it's, really, it's really challenging. I have, you know, okay, so breaking this down, where does it all start? Um, it starts with a few things. One is um, obviously getting, uh, building a good vision and getting some people behind that. So like team really is the primary focus. Like finding these what I call like really rare individuals. Um, we don't talk a lot about rare individuals in hiring. We talk about A players and the best people and really that's bollocks because it doesn't mean much to anyone. Like yeah, if I say to you, let's go hire some A players, what the fuck does that mean? Like someone from Google or Amazon? Well, that's great, but like, are they aligned with the mission and, and do they have something rare and unique to bring to the company? So. I think the foundation for all of this is, is one thing is people first, 100%. So the majority of my time of focus, Kate's and other leaders in the organization now is really focused on finding those um, rare individuals and being a rare individual is something that's unique to you. Uh, and it's something that takes a, a lot of, I think, uh, development to get to understanding like what your rare gift is. Like my rare gift is creating and inventing things uh, where people haven't seen opportunity yet then thinking about how you can unlock that opportunity with things like capital and all those other things. Like everything after that creation is an output of that initial spark. Like that initial spark means what I love doing, time stops, and I'm, you know, I've, I consider myself quite good at that. You make people feel extremely comfortable on your podcast within the first two seconds of speaking to you. That's quite a rare, unique gift that you're leveraging in a really powerful way to like highlight and have intelligent discourse around, you know, interesting companies, interesting things that are happening in the world. Identifying that at a core level and building a team around that philosophy really builds a firm foundation for building big things that are really ambitious. So number one is like most of my time is spent with team members, like working to develop what those skills are and then finding people to bring into the organization, those rare people to bring in that also have a performance mindset. So like you back that into a performance mindset and away you go. Now, there's a ton of other stuff around that. Loads of other shit that kind of like bog you down. There's all the admin and all of that, but um, it's really then, you know, working collaborative, collaboratively as a team to do one thing and one thing only. Like, while it's wonderful talking big vision with you, um, that is, that 10 year vision is the output of like a million iterations and a million steps that, to get there. Um, so it's like constantly restraining myself with like this big vision with some really great counterweights in the company. Like our chief product officer, Gio is really narrows down focus. We just brought on a, a really amazing CTO, Nick, who, um, is really great at, um, slimming down technical scope and delivering what is most powerful for the customer in the most scalable way. Um, that's like long-term future proof, 
um, but also like moving quickly. So it's all about how do you then distill that down into what's most powerful? And that's like spending a lot of your time talking to your customers and talking to your end user. Um, I think I'm constantly distracted by the want to make us into a B2C company sometimes. I, should, I shouldn't say that, but that's a reality. Like I love talking, <laughs> I love talking to the end user mm. and I think it's really cool. So I'm constantly like, oh God, it, we could just launch this product on our own product and do this, but that's a distraction from building this core layer. And I think really narrowing those distractions is really important. So I love working with people. Um, mm. I love creating with others and we have a, a, a really core team culture, which is around identifying your unique gift and then driving performance around that and putting you with other high performing people, which just like maximizes everything. So I spend a ton of my time and Kate spends a ton of time and other leaders working on identifying and really fostering a, a constructive environment around that. And sort of everything becomes outputs of that, honestly, once you restrict scope. And it's too easy to get distracted by shiny things. When you're a creative like me, that's my weakness. It's like, oh, that looks mm. interesting. <laughs> we could just do that. Um, but then having good people to sort of be your uh, blocker and, and cover your weaknesses so you focus on. So we call it like our DNA or we don't, I don't like the term mm. culture. Culture has just been abused for so long. I think culture in its own right is like an entire conversation. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. It is. And like so many people like, it's true. It's true. Come out with all this bullshit about culture. And, and it's, what does it really mean? It means, you know, what works for you and what builds a group of people that are aligned around a common goal that no matter what is thrown at them, you know, you can have tons of peaks, which you, you optimize your highs and you try and minimize yeah. your lows. You, you never have an absence of both. Um, and when you get through those troughs, like how do you do it as a team and how do you not fall apart? So, Again, to reiterate the answer to your question, it's like majority of my time right now is focused internally on people and then really trying to deeply understand the customer and even behave like the end user to these products, like constantly testing, mm -hmm. constantly looking at what's out there and thinking about what is like the most innovative fit um, to really differentiate yourself and, and create as big a moat or distance from, from other people as you can with that unique thing. So you mentioned this, this term, like rare people, rare individuals. Yeah. So I think it's, it's when you reach the scale of like Google, you can find all the rare individuals on the planet, assuming they're, yeah. they're software engineers and they want to work at Google. How do you find rare individuals as in like day zero, like day one of a company? Like you have an idea, you want to execute. How do you find rare individuals to join in your mission? Wow. That's quite, a, that's quite a question. And, 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 and again, like, I love your questions. That's a really, well, I want to know, cause I'm it's a really I'm bloody good question. It's a really good question. Um, I think we did it by accident to start with, to be perfectly honest with you. This is what I'm talking about here is now the product of 13 years of working with people, uh, since I first founded the company and like, honestly, trudging through a ton of like terrible experiences where. I've been in employee tribunals in the UK where we've dismissed people. And while it was the right dismissal, that's come back to haunt you because the way in which it was conducted was in a really lean way where um, the, the process was done correctly, but there's still someone, there's a human being at the end of the process, right? And that person is generally going to fight for what's right for them. And, and that is what they should do. So just a range of like positive and negative experiences. And when we started Ping Me, I... I've always gone to the people I trust most. So you'll often, you get the mafias, right? You get like the PayPal mafia you've got in cryptocurrency, you've got 
lots of different subsets or subcultures of people or sub teams that have all come from like bigger, like the Uber, the Uber, ex Uberites are like a whole thing. Googlers are, are, are a thing. So if you're in one of those clicks, you can really sort of, I think, start something quickly with a trusted team. Um, mm. I was lucky to have a core group of people that were around me, product operations with Kate, my co-founder, uh, innovation with me, like technical kind of CEO, and then some good like engineering executors that I've worked with before, like built on trust, like a group of people that you really trusted to form that base connection. And then really it's all relationship driven. Um, you know, relationships don't get you to scale. So like now, for example, uh, after our series A, um, we are going through the phase of being really meticulous in picking a recruiting lead. So I'm gonna back out to like how we got there. So to start with picking friends that you wanna work with, that you know are brilliant, being in the right place and surrounding your play itself with people that are way smarter than you. Like that's again, super cliche. Everyone says like, you wanna be the dumbest person in the room, but truly you wanna be the dumbest fucking person in the room. And when you find those people, latch onto them and build relationships and identify, do you have things in common? Like if you're going through a shitty trench with everything falling apart, are they gonna stick with you? Um, and are they gonna come out with solutions to problems instead of just complaints about the problems? So like that core group of people that I, f I feel, you know, Geo is just a phenomenal intuitive product designer. He can produce product that is at a really, like I think intuitively high level of understanding with loads of empathy. Like when you find somebody that can also self-identify with the skills that you see in themselves, that's someone that's rare and unique. Thing about rare people is there is the whole point is there's not many like a players. There's loads of a players, but there's barely any, like, <laughs> barely any like rare people. Um, and finding them is like going through volume. Like you've got to go through volume and hmm. you often find people are connected in the same way. So you'll go to a certain event focused on something that there's a common interest in, and those people will just stand out. Um, Maybe I shouldn't say this, it sounds a bit arrogant, but like along with like creating, I, I my, one of my gifts is identifying what people are really amazing at and then helping to kind of allow them to bring that out. So I think that intuition is quite strong and it's just as soon as you see someone that has a gift, grab hold of them and like foster that relationship, befriend them, whatever it might be. And you'll often find there's a real common link with them. And then from there, mm. how do you scale it? And you scale it by making a load of mistakes. You scale it by bringing people in that don't fit with that and maybe don't fit with the way that you think about it. And we're still figuring this out. Like, I wish I had an answer for you, but like three and a half years on, we are now looking for one individual to come into the organization that shares the same kind of like philosophy. There are only three top tier tennis players in the world. They've all won the same number of grand slams. They all love competing against each other and like they're rare. So we're trying to build a company with fewer people, not more people. And those fewer people have domain expertise that really powers a company forward. And like I said, it's very easy for me to say this. It's really hard to build it and find people. You've got to be patient. You've got to be patient. And there's again, there's some conflicting incentives here, right? You're a VC backed company you have shareholders, you have a responsibility as a board, you need to move quickly, you need to deliver, but how do you do that while maintaining this philosophy? 
I hope in two years' time I can come back to you and say, this is the playbook. Okay. <laughs> I would love to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's truth-seeking is, is what I really think is and like trying to be authentic. Mm. You find that most people can't be honest with themselves. They, when you're dealing right. with an employer or like somebody you work with, it's really hard to create a space. So it's, it's how do you, when you speak to people in interviews, A, project a certain brand. Like there'll be people hopefully that see this and watch this and connect with what I'm saying. They're the people we're looking for. It's the person that hears this and is like, oh shit, that's for me. Like, I want to focus on one thing and be the best at it. That's the person we're looking yeah. for. We're not looking for someone that's like a, you know, isn't connected with that. And that's okay. Yeah, it's really okay. hard. It's really hard. It's really hard. But start with people you trust. Start with people you know. It is a family you're working with. And the people that no matter what happens, the other, the next day after the shit hits the fan, they're still going to be there with you by your side, coming up mm. with solutions to the problem that nine times out of 10 are right. And the other hundred times it's wrong, or, you know, you've got multiple iterations in there. Um, they can continue iterating and going forward. Mm. It's like, it's, it's really cool. In the interest of time, I have one last question I want to ask you. And that <laughs> is what's something you wish you knew? That's the one you've been learning in this past year or two uh, that you wish you knew about five, 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, oh God, that's a brilliant question. So I wish I knew more about credit and what it was to build wealth when I was, when I was younger. Mm. Um, I've had many opportunities where I could have created wealth and they slipped me by. And I think the thing that I realized is you get certain opportunities in life that you get these big peaks so like these peaks and troughs that you're maximizing, or minimizing. You don't always know when they're happening. And when some things happen out of like, you know, spontaneity and you get this like windfall of luck, this like a combination of things, it's not taking that for granted. So often through my life, I've had these like magical moments happen, which I think everybody can reflect and say, that was a moment in time where everything was moving freely. Things were just happening. And it's like a magic moment, right? I wish I had more in hindsight guidance and awareness of those moments to maximize them more and not let them slip through my hands. But then you see, if you go through those phases of that happening and dropping away, keep on going, you reach a point where hopefully you start noticing them more, and then you can start building more around them and build things that are more enduring. And that's part of the price I honestly paid for growing up how I did. It's like, you know, you wouldn't, you would, you would think about, I remember my dad growing up, counting the slices of bread in a loaf and valuing them at, at like 10 pence a slice. And if one was going stale, that would be a whole thing in the house because it was such a significant amount of money in terms of what we're doing. We would grow all of our food in the house, in our garden, very, very self-sufficient. And in that mentality, that scarcity mentality is very different to how do you start optimizing? Because when you get something coming in, you then can just like spend it or squander it or whatever. So that's one of the biggest things is like, not taking for granted when, when things happen in your favor. And then how do you build on top of that more incrementally is one of the things that, you know, had I known previously could have built a lot more than what I built today uh, and a bigger platform for like change. Um, but I know that now and, and things are now getting momentum and, and build, you know, you build more leverage over time. Right. So that's my biggest thing for me is like, and the other thing as well is do not hesitate bringing in people that know more than you. I, I worked in consulting in San Francisco when I first got here doing marketing consultancy. 
And the one thing that I found was really, I didn't know it at the time, but I know it now. A lot of companies would not hire C-suite early. We've taken the decision to bring on C-level executives really early, probably earlier than anyone's, but like in terms of scaling yourself as a founder and building quickly and getting that nine out of 10 things right, right. it's yeah. a really smart move. So like I have been building, for example, some of the executives built, even bringing on relationships for two years before bringing them in. So almost from the start of the company, <laughs> like fostering and nurturing, going back to my question, like these rare people, when you find them, latch onto them, they're not all going to jump for what you're doing straight away. They, are, they will have a big opportunity cost that you've got to overcome. Um, right. And I think that was, again, luck building those relationships. But had I known that five years ago, I would have been building and not taking those relationships for granted for a longer period of time. Because it's it's it has almost more value than capital, those people. Um, and they can build more value than, than capital can. Yeah, I hope that's a good answer. Well, not I hope that's a good answer. It's like, that's my answer. Like, I, I just haven't it always... answer, and I like it. I haven't always... Uh, fully appreciated the things that come to me. And um, now I do not take anything for granted. For what it's worth, I still think you're super young. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I think every day that I'm working like crazy hours and through the weekend, it feels like <laughs> quite quickly. Yeah. yeah. 39 in like two months. So um, yeah, that feels like a big milestone. But um, yeah, lots to build. And, you know, the, the big vision for what I'm doing here is. I believe fundamentally that financial access leads to a better world. Um, when people are, you know, making a decision between slash and burn in Madagascar or sending their kids to school, the face of slash and burn is a child that's trying to get a better chance in life and a family that's trying to get give that child a better chance in life. And that should not be judged. I want I want the world to be preserved. I don't want to travel to Mars. That's not my, if, if I become really like- Not my ideal solution either. <laughs> not too, like, this planet is incredibly special and we should be helping people be less dependent on it, more dependent on technology, uh, more dependent on ec economies that are more borderless. And I think in a world like that, we say we preserve this planet and we preserve our health. And that all comes from this hmm. base. And like, what I'd like to see in like 20 or 30 years is access to finance driving that better world in a way that's more sustainable more responsible and um yeah that's that's the outcome i'm hoping for well brendan i've uh, i've loved enjoyed our conversation likewise i would uh love to have follow-up conversations after this but in interest of your time i just want to make sure i'm just being respectful of it uh i just want to end and just give you an opportunity if for our viewers in the audience for the viewers who are watching this um if they'd like to follow you along your journey or reach out to you or maybe even apply to your company, what's the best way for them to do so? Yeah, um, for me, I'm not hugely active on Twitter, but I'm on Twitter. It's just at Brendan Playford. Um, or if you go to pingme.com, P-N-G-me.com, um, you can go on our careers page. We have lots of roles that are open. We're looking for, again, these rare individuals. If, if this resonates with you, please drop us a line. Um, and we'd love to talk to you and, you know, come on board. We're very mission driven and would love to work with new people and, and, and excited to meet other people that think the same way that we do. Sounds good. Well, thanks again for your time, Brendan. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much, David.